morning, everybody. Now, I know you all have your budget presentations ready, but there's a change of plans. Due to the crippling gridlock at City Council, we are postponing all planning and spending decisions indefinitely. Um, until when? Indefinitely. And when will that end? Later than now. So this week, probably? Look, we are bordering on a full-blown crisis, Leslie. The state government is sending a team from Indianapolis to try to solve this budget problem. I needed you, I knew I was in danger Of losing what I used to think was mine Hello and welcome to Planet Money. I'm David Kestenbaum. And I'm Hannah Jaffe-Wald. Today is Friday, March 4th, and that was the TV show Parks and Recreation you heard at the top of the podcast. Today, a city that looks at its budget and decides, you know what? We can't handle this. They throw in the towel and they ask the state to officially declare them a financial disaster area. Also, a man who pretends he has a zoning permit and the surprising things you find when you look in the basement of City Hall. But first, our Planet Money indicator from Jacob Goldstein. Today's Planet Money indicator is 30,000. States and cities cut 30,000 jobs in February, and just over half of those were in education. And this is really a particularly striking number because February was actually a very good month for jobs overall. The private sector added 220,000 jobs in February. That's good. That's strong job growth. And if you look back over the past year or so, we've been seeing this kind of pattern month after month. The private sector is adding jobs, and month after month, state and local governments keep cutting jobs. So this is actually the opposite of what we were seeing back in 2008. In 2008, private companies were cutting jobs like crazy and states and cities were actually hiring people. So why are we seeing that change? So I think a big part of what's happening here is this lag in the way state finances work. So if we go back to 2008, states were still basically doing okay. They were largely living off taxes from the previous year when the economy was still all right. But then in 2009, they got totally hammered. State tax revenues fell by 12%, which is really a big drop. Last year, tax revenues came back a little bit, but not nearly enough to make up for that drop. So states are still deep in the hole, even though the economy, you know, more broadly has started to come back. And of course, states, unlike the federal government, they basically have to balance their budgets each year. So when their revenues go down like this, they basically have to raise taxes, cut jobs or or both. So that part seems bad, but I know you don't like to admit this, Jacob, but it does seem like there is a good news indicator in the jobs numbers in general, which is that there is job growth in the private sector, which we've been really wanting. Absolutely. And it's and it's pretty big job growth. And the unemployment rate actually fell just below 9% to 8.9%. So overall, this is indeed a pretty strong jobs report. Okay. Thanks, Jacob. Thanks, guys. So governors and mayors all across the country have been staring at their budgets and just looking at all that red ink and asking, what is the way out of here? And they've been coming up with different answers to that question. In Wisconsin, of course, Governor Walker wants to make public employees contribute more money to their pension and health plans. And he wants to curb their ability to collectively bargain in the future. Governors in Ohio and Indiana are also going that route. In Honolulu, the mayor wants to raise taxes on property and gas. The mayor in Cedar Rapids, Iowa wants to increase the sales tax. But on today's show, we're going to look at a mayor who has a completely different approach, a man who halfway through his second term in office decided, you know what, I'm not going to propose more cuts or raise taxes. This mayor simply said, I can't deal with this. I don't see a way out of this that we can actually pull off. I give up. You're going to meet the mayor in a minute. But first, to understand what he is up against, 
Here's a quick sketch of his city. The city is Reading, Pennsylvania. Reading is a relatively small city, 80,000 people. It's about an hour northwest of Philadelphia. There's some nice hills. It probably looks pretty green in the summer, I'm guessing. But Reading is in trouble. It has shrunk over the decades. And then, of course, this recession. Bottom line, for the past few years, the money Reading brings in from taxes is not enough to pay for its police and fire departments. Forget all the other things a city does. Not enough for police and fire. In 2007, the budget hole was $2.1 million. In 2008, it was $3.1 million. 2009, something like $11 million. The city could raise taxes, but there's only so much of that you want to do every year. They could make some small cuts, but remember, they're not even covering police and fire. I'm Donna Reed. I sit on Reading City Council. I represent Northwest Reading. I'm Linda Kelleher. I'm the city clerk for the city of Reading. These are the first two people we met in Reading. And Linda and Donna immediately told us about the last several years and how every October, the council, the mayor, would hang their heads over a sad budget and try to come up with some way to get their hands on a couple million dollars. Linda told us they would do these financial maneuvers to buy a little time. And then in 2009, they shrunk the deficit by literally shrinking the city itself. Linda and Donna point to a huge framed black and white photo. This is Antietam, Antietam Lake. Lake. This is the Valve House. This is as it looked probably when it was purchased, when yeah, it was brand new. Yeah, in the 1800s. And I believe it's a 560-acre watershed. 560 acres, yep. It's a beautiful area. People go fishing up there. <coughs> uh, the city owned it, but... Um, in 2009, the city sold the lake, sold it to the county for $4 million. The sale got them to the next year. So you had this beloved lake... Used by everyone in the county, and but but you're but you're in budget trouble, and you realize this could be a, yeah. this mm-hmm. a money maker. Yeah, mm-hmm. we started going. Hmm, this this doesn't sound too bad. <laughs> you know, we could use a few dollars. So, but next year the budget hole was back in 2009, something like 11 million dollars. That was the situation the mayor Thomas McMahon found himself in, and so on September 10th, 2009, he decided to write a letter no mayor ever wants to write. He sat in his mayor chair to write the state of Pennsylvania and ask for his city to be declared basically a financial disaster area. It became clear to me it's not getting anywhere. I've been losing sleep on this. I've talked myself to death on this, and now it's, it's time for me to write that letter. And I, I remember signing that letter thinking this is a way. There was a great relief on my part, a feeling of relief in it saying we're finally going to be doing something. It's as if to say I know I have a a very serious health issue. Now, I'm finally going to take action. I'm going to go and and get this pain looked after, and somebody's going to help me with it. Mayor McMahon had no idea who would help him with it, who would respond once he sounded the alarm. But it all happened really fast. The letter went out in September, and in December, help arrived. A financial doctor and his team, a guy with orangish hair and an enormous laugh. I didn't really know you could sell a lake. (laughs) Or who was in the market to buy lakes? (laughs) Is there a lake market? This, ladies and gentlemen, is Gordon Mann. On weekends, he's an amateur sports broadcaster. During the week, financial disaster doctor. He drives across Pennsylvania from failing city to failing city. In all the recommendations that we would come up with to balance a budget, I don't think we ever would have thought of selling something off off of... a map. I don't know that we would have thought you could sell a natural body of water, but apparently you can. Gordon is part of a special team from the state. Pennsylvania has a program called Act 47, where a city or a town, often instead of declaring bankruptcy, can ask the state to come in and hopefully fix things. 
There are 20 municipalities in the program right now, 20. Gordon and his team work in three of them, and they do some work in struggling cities outside of Pennsylvania. Unfortunately for Gordon, when he shows up, not everyone who is sick wants to see a doctor. Gordon says people will often introduce themselves to him by saying, you know what, I don't really think we need you here. Or they're straightforward, I don't want you here. Or even more straightforward. We uh, recently went to a city meeting and we're talking about the fact that the city of Newcastle could not really afford to give as generous a raise to their police officers as the council members wanted to. Um, and uh, after the meeting, um, there were some cookies on the table, and I was, I, I said to the one of the police officers, oh, would you like the last one? And he said, if I take that cookie, I'm likely to stick it somewhere you won't like. And that's okay. <laughs> I think that was probably a fair, a fair thing to say, but yeah. In Reading, people were more receptive to Gordon, or at least quieter in their resentment, like Linda, the city council clerk. I was one of the people that wasn't very happy about it. Linda was born in Reading. She's worked with every city council for the last 15 years. And she carries around this huge mug that says office goddess. You kind of get the sense that Linda is the person you call when you have a question you know you should know the answer to, but you don't because you know Linda always will. She remembers the moment the mayor told her the state was coming. It was, it was, it was like a sad time. It really was like a sad time. Why? What was sad about it? Just the giving up, like the the belief that the administration couldn't handle those things anymore. I, I just believe that that we should be taking some actions on our own to fix things. So here is what the doctor does, Gordon's process. He goes into a town and he talks with the patients, every single patient. People like Linda, the mayor, the city council, the librarians. Everyone has a story about what they think the problem is and how they got there. Gordon just listens to their version of what went wrong. In this way, he's a bit like a doctor of psychology. He's more like a therapist. Linda says Gordon and his team, they have excellent bedside manner. Some venting. Everybody did some venting. I vented a little bit. I admit it. I admit it. (laughs) Not quite that bad. But it was good. They have a really open attitude. When you started venting or, or telling them something from your point of view, they didn't immediately shut you down. They listened to everything everyone had to say. Gordon goes around town collecting the narrative, or the various narratives, and then he goes after the data, the numbers. Most of the time, that's the harder part. Because a lot of what we find when we come into these cities is early on, they just don't know. What are their expenses? I don't know. How many appoint- employees do we have? I don't know. Can you pay your bills next month? I hope so. There are certain things that are hard to count and sort of theoretical, And but how many cars you have is not a theoretical number. That's a number that you should be able to go one, two, three, I have three. You know, so part of our, part of our job is, is, is to kind of – is to get those numbers out there where people are comfortable with them, um, where they know, OK, I have to make a hard decision because my numbers say whatever it is they say. Figuring out what it is the numbers say takes several months. When you bring in outside people to look through a city's finances, you find some strange stuff. Are you referring to the checks? (laughs) This is David Kersley, another outsider who was called in to work on the Reading case. Kersley's a business analyst, and he told us his approach. Sometimes he imagines himself as a bit of paperwork, any paperwork that comes in with a check, and he walks himself through the system. One day, he was pretending he was a zoning permit. So I'm a walking zoning permit, and so I walk from the codes office on the first floor up to the third floor, and I'm walking down the hall. I open the door, 
because I want to see what happens to me in this office. And I observe a lady flipping through a card file full of checks. Like in a shoebox or what yeah, should I pick? You could call it a shoebox. Yeah. So I say, hey, what you doing? The woman tells him, these are all the checks that have come in with the zoning permits. When they come in, they go in this box. Hundreds and hundreds of checks in a shoebox. You thought those should be cash, right? That's money the city should be having to work with. Right? Oh, there's just no question about it. Here we are, a financially distressed city, and you walk into an office and you find a shoebox full of checks. So I took the box of checks from her and went, marched myself into the city auditor's office and said, do you know about this? City auditor says, uh, no. The local newspaper, the Reading Eagle, actually ran a story this year about another box of uncashed checks. And these ones were stored in a recycling bin in the basement of City Hall. So one night, the janitorial staff comes by and picks up the recycling bin with the checks in it and takes it out to the recycling. So city employees actually had to drive out to the recycling sorting place to go after them. These stories made headlines, but when we asked the financial doctor, Gordon Mann, about the checks, he said, yeah, it doesn't inspire confidence. But really, it's small potatoes. He, at this time, is making his way through City Hall also, talking to the heads of all the departments. And one day, he is sitting at a table, actually the very table we interviewed him at, when a city manager tells him about the sewer money. The manager explained to Gordon that when the city needed money, someone looked around and decided to quietly grab money from the sewer fund. And not just a little money, $11 million. That money, the manager told Gordon, was going to have to be paid back. Gordon had been running the numbers, and $11 million was a big number. The entire city budget was $84 million. So if the city had been standing at the bottom of a financial hole that was over its head, that hole just got way deeper. Gordon and his colleague left the meeting and talked it over. I mean, I think there's a moment, there's a cathartic moment where you walk out and the first thing you have to do is you have to laugh a little bit and go, wow, that's really bad. (laughs) You have to be able to find a little bit of of levity in it for the moment and then say, okay, um, Um, what are we going to do? The city wasn't even allowed to borrow that much money from the sewer fund. The sewer fund is basically fees that get collected from everyone in Reading and the surrounding area who flushes a toilet. And the money is supposed to be set aside to maintain all that equipment, all the pipes, the water treatment center, all that stuff. And the strange thing about the $11 million taken from the sewer fund, when Gordon went around, no one seemed to know about it. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Wait, wait. We, we mentioned the sewer money and you start laughing and pointing to each other. No, you tell it. You tell it. This is Linda and Donna again, city clerk and city council member. Linda remembers very clearly when the financial doctor came to tell her about this. He just, in a very no-nonsense manner, said, this is what happened. $11.2 million was taken from the sewer fund, at which point my mouth kind of fell open. I think I was stunned. Did you understand what that meant when he said it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. What did, what did it mean? We were in deep, deep, deep doo-doo, <laughs> A. B, it was upsetting because city council was not informed about that as it was occurring. More upsetting than that, this was illegal. Someone broke the law. Someone took $11 million out of the sewer fund, and nobody knows how it happened? The city council made this big show about how surprised they were, how they had no idea about the $11 million. And then the mayor, when we sat him down, he basically said the same thing, no idea. 
I thought, oh my goodness. Um, I was uh, I was amazed to find it out that that we had we had done this. I I thought. Um, I guess I don't understand how everyone was surprised by that. Like the, all the council people we've talked to also say they were surprised mm-hmm. by that. How did nobody know that that happened? You're the council and the mayor, so now we've talked to everybody who's basically yeah. in charge. Yeah, um, it's it's a it's a good question. All I all I can say is that the 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 loose accounting system that we had. Um, just didn't didn't reveal that until the end of the year. Maybe some folks knew about it and were hoping against hope that they would be able to resolve it by the end of the year. The point is we had to stay in operation. I mean, somebody made the decision to do it. Somebody pressed a key and drew, transferred those funds and then started to use them to pay people. Probably true. <laughs> Probably true. Somebody, 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 somebody in this building, somebody you know, somebody probably within a hundred feet of us. I would imagine it's a small staff here, right? If uh, if that was if that was the case, you know, there there may have been one or two people who knew about it. There may have been um, there may have been a case where they say, well, let's see if we can resolve this without uh, without getting the mayor all upset. And I think we've had some discussion afterwards. Say. Let's not do this again. The next year, the city had to scramble to find a way to pay the money back. They took out another loan to do that. And now they have to pay back that loan plus an extra million dollars or so in interest. Gordon says things like dipping into restricted sewer funds is not unusual. Distressed cities are always looking for some way to keep issuing paychecks to firemen, police, and city employees. Cities and states all over the country are selling off pieces of themselves. Okay, not lakes, but, you know, parking lots or Arizona sold some of its state government buildings to get some quick cash. In future years, they're going to have to lease that space. California was looking at that too, but it just backed out. Illinois has decided to pay vendors, colleges, nonprofits, and others late. New Jersey considered selling a toll road to make some cash. It's sort of like a bunch of Hail Mary passes. Local and state governments are doubling down. And if it works, they can stay afloat for one more year, which is not nothing. You know, that means they can keep paying their teachers and reading tutors and policemen. And maybe things will improve somewhere. But the thing is, if they don't, they're just making the short-term problems even worse for themselves next year. Gordon says he sees this all the time. Governments postpone the pain, often with some complicated technical maneuver. The more technical, the better. People don't understand we have a debt rate swap and the interest rates are going to be different. I mean, you know, half your audience just fell asleep halfway into that sentence, (laughs) including all of city council. And so you can get that to go through. If I start by saying we have a problem and what I really want to do is lay off cops, everybody's eyebrows just went up. I understand what cops are. I see them on the street. And so you go with the interest rate swap and postpone laying off cops. And you hope things get better. But when you look deep into the numbers, Reading and a lot of cities and states have real long-term problems. Reading, like a lot of cities, is smaller than it used to be. Remember Reading Railroad? The city was once important enough to have a monopoly card named after it. The city has shrunk since then, but the costs of health care and pension plans, those things are growing. Selling a lake or cashing the checks in the basement is not going to fix that. In order to really address those long-term problems, Reading's government is going to have to stop spending so much money and do the thing that is so hard for governments to do. It has to shrink. And that explains the list. 
I'll, I'll read them in order, as ranked by city council. Police patrol is number one. Investigating crime is number two. Uh, making an emergency call for emergency services for police is number three. Zoning enforcement is number four. This is Carl Gefkin, the Reading city manager. And he's been drawing up a list of all the things the city does and getting all the major players in government to rank them by importance. It's sort of like the municipal version of what 10 things would you take with you to a desert island? Library services, um, park uh, maintenance, uh, street maintenance. Linda and Donna again with the city council. Snow plowing. Zoning. Zoning. Codes uh, enforcement. Absolutely. Number 13 is health and safety for the property maintenance division. Uh, our vending machine inspections. If you have a vending machine, you want to make sure that the items in the vending machine are not out of date, that the vending machine holds its temperature properly. Everything is on the list, even the people who paint yellow lines on the street. Where did line painting come out? <laughs> Line painting came out last. Actually, in parts of the city, citizens have taken to painting lines themselves, painting their own curbs and things like that. That's starting to happen. Again, because we don't have the ability to do it anymore. So if your curb's yellow and it's faded, public works will give them paint. You can paint your curb yellow. It took the city council two full days to do this. And in the end, they had ranked every single city service. Unfortunately, the things at the top of the list, police patrol, police investigations, 911 calls, fire, those are the most expensive things the city pays for. So in the end, the the list doesn't fix the problem. It just restates it in an orderly list. Yeah. So the financial disaster doctor, Gordon Mann, says there's no escaping the logic of the list. And he has a doctor's prescription. It runs 300 pages long. Nowhere in the 300 pages is there a simple solution. Instead, here is essentially what it recommends. Reading needs to freeze wages for three years and police, fire, all union employees have to pay more towards their health care, which is another way of saying you have to take a pay cut. And the city has to raise a variety of taxes. Basically, they have to bring in more money and they have to spend less. Even Gordon, who helped write this prescription, does not argue this is an outline for some rosy future. A question we get um, is people who say, I, I see where your budget gets me in balance, but I don't see where it creates a community I want to live in. Probably for that to happen, Reading and cities like it, they have to find a way to grow. It's just the mathematics of it. You can't have cities with declining, aging populations and increasing health care costs for police and firefighters. The math just does not work. As a nation, our economy is growing. It's just growing in other places. So the Reddings around the country are straightening out their books and hoping things will go their way. Which makes Reading and places like it sound pretty doomed. Although Gordon, the financial doctor, is really clear that he does not feel that way. He says cities do work things out, even if they have to sell a lake or declare themselves a financial disaster area first. David, you asked him about this. I was thinking, like, which is more surprising, the fact that there are checks in the basement or the fact that given given the way democracy works, we're, like, throwing in new leaders all the time, uh, that it works as well as it does? Like, I couldn't tell which is more surprising, like, the checks in the basement or the fact that by and large, these crazy organizations actually they manage to do okay a lot of the time. I think the latter. I think it, I think the, I think I think the fact that it, uh, despite all the the foibles and, and quirks, for the most part, you know, 
there's the garbage is still picked up and the firefighters still answer the phone and and all those other things and all those other things happen. People are very proud of the city of Reading and its history. This is Carl again, the city manager who put together that list that the city council went through. Carl actually just moved to Reading to take the job and already he can give you the sales pitch. You look at Reading and you see it has its own symphony, it has its own major museum. Uh, it was one of the first uh, cities in the nation to put forth a sewer treatment system. It is actually something to be proud of in the before the city of Philadelphia. So it has a long and glorious track record. And we're going through a little bumpy period now, but the core of the city is good. For now, Reading has a plan. It's going to follow the doctor's orders. Elections are coming up, though, and next year there could be a new mayor, new people on the city council. This, of course, is the beauty of democracy and the problem with it. A city is set up to serve its citizens. It's not some profit-making institution. We get to elect the people who run our cities, and yet it's messy. Reading, friends, if you've never been there, it is right off Route 422 in southeastern Pennsylvania. They make a mean scrapple. If you want, you can help paint the lines on the street. You can see the photo Linda and Donna were pointing to in Linda's office of the lake that Reading sold for $4 million on our blog, npr.org slash money. As always, let us know what you think. Send us email, planetmoney at npr.org. You can also find us on Facebook. I'm David Kestenbaum. And I'm Hannah Jaffe-Walt. Thanks for listening. Compassion with the sting of eyes